Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. After talking with Haley Windham last week, she mentioned to me that when she first heard that intro, she thought, ooh, an e-commerce fraud fighter. Well, I'm not in e-commerce. I'm in banking, so I don't know if I can relate. And I explained to her that one of the reasons why I have that in there is because I've had several people tell me that helps. Otherwise, they don't know when they start listening to the podcast where my perspective is coming from. But I in no way want that to mean or be exclusive to anyone or make anyone feel like, okay, well, I'm in banking or I'm in fintech, I'm in crypto, I'm in marketplaces. So if Carice has this background of e-commerce, none of this is going to apply to me. I hope that's not true. In fact, I don't think that, that is at all the case when it comes to account takeovers, especially because these are issues that everyone within online fraud, if your company has an account and has validation of an account, like passwords, and usernames, and emails, et cetera, you are having these issues. Well, I have been trying more and more to have more episodes be kind of universal to all fraud fighters. I can't help where my perspective comes from. And I think that in some ways it's very helpful because there isn't a lot of information or education out there about this particular side of fraud fighting. However, when it comes to account takeovers, it doesn't matter what type of company you are. And I know that over the last several years, we just continually are seeing ATO methods and just the scale and the amount of accounts being targeted and taken over has become methodical. It has become big business in crime syndicates and other criminal organizations. So it's something we need to be talking about. Speaking of that, I really hope that you listened to Tuesday's episode. It was a replay from a panel conversation that I moderated with Sean Colpitz at Just Eat Takeaway, as well as Mike Lewis, who is the head of engineering and machine learning for risk at Square. Both of them have really unique but extensive knowledge and perspectives on account takeover. And I really appreciated that conversation. I really hope you did too. Whether you heard it on the CMP Virtual Summit series or not, I think it's always good to listen to again because you can often pick up other things. I listened to it again the other day and was like, oh yeah, I forgot that I was going to look that up or this is really good information. I loved Mike's mention of targeted friction. That's something I'll be talking about a little bit later today as well. I think I've been calling it dynamic friction, whatever we call it. I think that is really where the industry is headed as far as finding ways to protect customers and authenticate accounts without causing too much friction for the good guys. And it's just a continual tightrope that we all are balancing more and more, especially with the economy and how every other department is working so hard to take away friction. And so sometimes they can be more than frustrated with us for putting it in. So at least if we're you know, showing them that it's dynamic and it's targeted, we're not providing friction to one. It's just if this and this, then we do that. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because of just 
how many accounts I'm hearing from people on the front lines that account takeovers are scaling in volume. They are progressing in just attack methods and they're becoming harder to identify and prevent as well as just so many other pieces of the puzzle, whether it's the episode I released two weeks ago now where we talked about there may have been a potential breach. I mentioned on the intro to Tuesday's episode that so far there hasn't been one mentioned. That doesn't mean that it didn't happen, but that also doesn't mean that it did. And I really kind of weighed my options as far as pulling the fire alarm, so to speak, both on the podcast as well as on LinkedIn. You know, over 10,000 people see my posts about that. But I tried to be very careful in saying that the who didn't matter if there was a data breach as much as the knowledge that the credentials were out there and that some retailers were starting to see account takeover volumes three and a half to five times their normal volume, account takeover attempts, I should say. And that is now spread to all different types of retailers, as well as fintech and banks, etc. Like I've said, I have a few theories about why that's happening all of a sudden, but nothing concrete. And I don't ever want to throw anyone under the bus if they were not a victim of a data breach or anything else. This company that I thought may have been a victim of a data breach may have been the first victim of account takeovers using credentials that were stolen somewhere else. There's only so much I can know from this outside perspective. I get to know so much because so many of you trust me and I'm so really grateful for that, but there's only so much I can know from the outside. But like I said, the what and the who doesn't matter as much as, okay, a lot of companies online are seeing more account takeovers. They are adapting. They have, you know, some specific MOs. These guys really know what they're doing. It doesn't seem like there are lists being sold, which means it's probably a really large organization that's all working coordinated together. And in this particular vector that I've kind of been tracking, it seems like their motivation is to liquidate and to monetize these credentials as quickly as possible. That is not always everyone's motive, but knowing the motive, knowing the MO and the methodology and the technology being used to commit the account takeover can really lead to identifying ways to detect them, as well as extra layers of security for detection and authentication to put in to ultimately protect your customers. So as I was thinking about this, you know, I mentioned on LinkedIn the other day that I have made the executive decision that the next two weeks, this week, as well as next week, at least, will be focused on account takeovers. There are several episodes from the past, and I hope soon to have these episodes tagged so that if you're searching for a specific topic, you can easily find the cluster of episodes on that topic. But for right now, if you're to search ATO in your podcast platform within Fraudology, you should find a handful of them. But as I got to thinking about, you know, what's already in the library, what have we already done in these 140 episodes of Fraudology since 2020, I realized that I don't think there's been an episode where I've just kind of started at the basics and just talked about what are they and why is it important to identify the motives? How can you identify what their motive is and the different methods and technology and tactics being used? And then as well as detection and deflection tech tactics and technology. So whether that's at the point of login with trusted device methodology, behavior biometrics, various detection processes like that, or authentication like multi-factor authentication, ID document verification, or if you, you know, really can't monitor or identify account takeovers until a transaction happens or a withdrawal or 
what transfer happens depending on the type of company you are, then what to look for there too. So that's really what I'm going to talk about today. I know ahead of time, like this is a disclosure, this is kind of just a foundational information and basics. I think even if you feel like you understand them well, hopefully there'd be you know some way of thinking about it that maybe you haven't thought of before, or I'm trying to be as encompassing as possible of all the different types of companies that see these. But also that, you know, so hopefully you're fine with a review if you already knew about them, but also that people who just might listen to us talk about account takeovers, but not know every piece of it, or how do I know if it's happening or how do I detect it? I've had so many conversations recently with you know, some newer people in the industry who didn't grow up with account takeovers gradually getting worse over the last 10 years and adapting just kind of thrown into it now. And that's why I thought that this would be the right topic to cover today. Sometimes I've joked that I think I should be the fraud historian. Several of us could be. I think Frank McKenna is right up there too. But from my perspective, I just can see how fraud has evolved so much since I've been in it. And I haven't been in it as long as a lot of people. I started around 2006 or so. But back to ATOs and, and why fraud history matters in my perspective is, you know, up until about 2010-ish, For I think for me it was like 2012, 2013-ish, when I started hearing about account takeovers, but I know that was later than in the banking world. Accounts weren't a big target and new accounts, you know, could succeed enough, right? Like the fraud prevention technology that we had often started to really flourish during that time. There started to be new fraud technology than just one or two companies around 2010 to 2014 or so. And a lot of them put weight on the risk of new accounts. And because of that, in this ever, this never ending game of cat and mouse, I was gonna say everlasting, but it's the same thing. This never ending game of cat and mouse, the fraudsters realized whenever we create a new account, that is becoming harder for us to obtain goods and to steal from online companies as well as from banking, right? And there were some obvious incentives for banking because a new account, you could get new credit lines. But after the 2008-2010 financial crisis, that was much harder to get. So instead, accessing accounts that already existed on banking systems and withdrawing funds and transferring them to other accounts that fraudsters controlled was much more advantageous for them. So I think it's a combination of things, combination of factors for why we saw this. I mean, if you think about the accounts that you created back, you know, in the early days, when I think about that, I think I mentioned this just you know, a little bit ago too, like my passwords weren't sophisticated because I didn't think they had to be. And I was in this industry that was before password manager and everything else, but still, and that is another reason why it's been challenging to train consumers because we obviously know the value there are in accounts and why it's so important to keep our online accounts secure, especially for those of us that do so much of our life online, that have so much of our life online, our financial lives and others. But this is a challenge for consumers to understand. And I think we can own part of that. But anyway, from my perspective, and I know I shared this before, ATOs weren't really a thing that impacted a lot of companies, but the online gaming and social media sectors started to see it first, as well as a couple of the newer payment processors that were starting to come up at that time. They were the ones who came to me when I worked at the Trade Association. You know, I was the only in-house industry expert at the time. And so I would always field the random questions, which I still love to field even in my own practice. They're my favorite thing. Hey, I don't 
know what we're seeing here. Have you seen this or have you heard this? And chances are I've heard about it already from someone else or I know someone else who probably is seeing it, et cetera. And I just love to troubleshoot random things. So I was working with the Gamer Safety Alliance at the time, which was consisted of several of the largest or the biggest online gaming companies at the time, as well as the consoles. And they were seeing a lot of account takeovers. So I suggested that they talk about it at our annual conference. And when it came time for the session, the room was packed. There were several hundred, probably about three, four hundred people in that room. It was at least 200 people in that room. But it wasn't necessarily because of the topic. It was because it was Xbox. It was EA. It was Big Fish Games and it was Blizzard, I think, as well on the panel and I was moderating it. But all those people at least got to learn what are these things we don't see now? Well, a lot of them ended up seeing them not that much longer after months or even a couple of years after. And now fast forward a decade later, we're seeing them everywhere. Any online company that has accounts with any value, whether it's a stored payment method or loyalty points or others, it's a prime target. And I definitely think that there is another other resurgence of account takeovers happening over the last few months. That's why I'm doing this episode. That's why I asked Sean and Mike to replay the episode from the CMP Summit series on Tuesday's episode of this week, because definitely seeing a lot more questions and just challenges around, wow, we thought we had ATOs under control and we don't. So like I said, they definitely hit banking first. E-commerce, it was online gaming and digital goods in general because there was no need to change the shipping address. They were easily transferred. It was digital currency that could be transferred without needing to be in the same country or, you know, anything like that. Since then, name a company online that has accounts of any kind, whether they're loyalty points or anything, banking or investments, crypto, et cetera, they are all susceptible to ATOs. And, And you guys know this. I know I'm preaching to the converted on that one. Another point whenever I'm kind of diagnosing account takeovers, and this is similar to what I talked about two weeks ago about diagnosing account takeovers from why are they happening or what's the bump or what's what are the similarities. This is similar, but I think the motives are very important. They're going to vary greatly depending on the business model and the type of company that you work for, as well as the account holder data availability, et cetera. In banking withdrawals and transfers, you know, deposits of bad, like fraudulent or washed checks, money laundering, credit card reissues, changing billing addresses. I'm usually used on high dollar e-commerce purchases. This happened quite a bit in 2019. There was a specific issuing bank that seemed to have a account takeover attack that leveraged changing the billing address so that the AVS would match as well as getting a new credit card reissued. And I worked with a handful of merchants that saw very high dollar transactions about this. And they were very frustrated because in one case, the bank actually admitted that it was account takeover on their side, which I know that customer service agent probably wasn't supposed to do, but it was helpful in figuring out what was going on. However, the merchant still had to foot the bill for the chargeback. And in these cases, they were like, chargebacks. And that was frustrating because the point of compromise was on the banking side. And in the merchant's perspective, they had done everything they could. In fact, the address that the customer, in quotation marks, gave the merchant was the same that matched the bank. They looked at AVS and said, well, the AVS is the same, so this must be right. There was not a lot, if anything, that the merchant could have done to identify this fraud. I'm not trying to litigate that chargeback, but I do think it's just another example of how no company is an island and how one, whether it's a breach or attack, you know, of ATOs or any other type of fraud issue at one place can definitely impact other companies. And I talked about that several weeks ago 
uh, when talking about shipping companies and how some of their employee credentials were being sold on Telegram groups for the purpose of refunding. Account takeover on an employee account at a shipping carrier can allow a fraudster to change the final status from delivered to lost in transit or returned to sender. So when they call customer service and say, I didn't get my package of this, you know, very expensive item or all of these expensive items, customer service looks up and the final tracking status was lost in transit or returned to sender. And of course, the customer, you know, in that case, customer service is going to issue a refund. Unfortunately, it's because of account takeover somewhere else that's outside of your control. We're seeing multi-level compromises just, and I don't know, that's not the right term. I don't know if there is a term for it, but let me know if there is. But where a compromise at one company is going to impact your own company's bottom line. We're seeing that way too often these days. And it's challenging to do because for a lot of reasons, companies still have to act in silos. But anyway, other motives for account takeovers in crypto and in fintechs, whether it's a consumer credit fintech or B2B, et cetera. They'll often be looking for transferring funds, cleaning out the accounts, changing all the customer information and using that account to funnel or launder funds through it, increasing credit limits and spending that, as well as just all the different ways. It really depends on the type of company it is, right? If you're a payment processing fintech versus a consumer lending fintech versus crypto, they're going to be different, but those are just some of the, you know, the main goals of account takeovers. Marketplaces. So this is, you know, one of those things. And I think that payment processors also have this too, where you have two different types of accounts. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode.
You have buyer accounts and you have seller accounts. So on the buyer accounts, it's going to be very similar to e-commerce account takeovers, where oftentimes the mission is to utilize the card or payment method on file, use the account for legacy or perks so they can add a card. Sometimes, we haven't seen this as often right now, but a few years ago, sometimes the account takeover motive was only to use the legacy of a customer account to make a purchase, not even on the stored credit card or the stored payment method, but actually on a different card. They'd just be using that account. And sometimes the longer the account is open, the more perks or status they have, more loyalty points they can earn, et cetera, which you can also cash out and transfer. So I haven't heard about that as much, but it certainly can happen. Transferring stored credit, buying gift cards on the stored payment method, and loyalty points, et cetera. On the seller accounts, this is similar to banking in a way, because a lot of times, you know, when somebody's selling something on a marketplace, especially if that's their small business, they may have large dollar funds you know, being deposited into their account. So sometimes the mission is to change the bank account information so that those deposits go somewhere else. Thankfully, a lot of marketplaces you know, have done a lot of work to lock that part down, but that is definitely a goal. For sure. And, and it's definitely something that is targeted. You know, also just withdrawing and transferring, you know, money from those good sales out of the account. In other cases, ATOs are being utilized to then use the seller's good history and trust and good seller rating to then sell in quotation marks fake or non-existent items to then cash out before the customer complains that they didn't receive it or that what was shipped wasn't what they ordered because some marketplaces, and it's very smart, won't pay out the seller until the item has been shipped to the customer. In some cases, it's once the tracking number has been initiated to the customer. Other cases, it's until the customer receives it. This is one of the reasons why to help promote and encourage trust in the marketplace that the seller will be motivated to provide the right item. In some cases, for those marketplaces that don't wait, and there are good reasons why they don't want to wait to fund the seller as well until the customer receives it. And again, we're you know hoping that the customer is also honest. In that case, there are some cases where they will log into a seller's account, take it over, change the password and everything, use their good selling history to sell a bunch of items, either cash out the money and or in some recent cases, and I think I've shared this previously, one of their main goals is just to get new PII information. They will get the buyer's name and address and email and phone number in some cases, depending on the marketplace. And now that's a new target that they can now apply for buy now, pay later accounts if that's all of the information that's needed to set up an account or try to commit account takeover on their page. Like There's just so many more spider webbing attack methods out there that it's fun for me to learn about them, but sometimes I have to map them out in my head just because every company is different and they're going to see different things. There are definitely themes in attack methods, but because the motives are going to be different, because the business models are different, because the cost of goods is different, and the individual policies and the way that each company deals with some of these things is going to be different. The attack vectors and the goals and how they, the methods will be different as well. So just closing out on kind of the method, the motives overall, e-commerce, stored value, obviously, whether there's credits, gift cards, loyalty points, et cetera, they're going to transfer those out as soon as possible. Now, this is for the person who's monetizing the account. I'm going to get to the steps of the account takeover in a couple minutes and not everyone who logs into an account that isn't theirs has the goal of monetizing it right away. But when the, you know, ultimately these accounts are monetized, this is what they're going for. Other times it's to transfer out 
out or use those gift cards, those credits, loyalty points, etc. Often it's to use the card or payment method on file. I have mentioned before in the episode two weeks ago about newer trend of account takeovers that it does seem like a payment wallets are being preferred. So if there's a specific payment wallet attached to an account within your company, and this is for e-commerce and marketplaces, and there might be a credit card and there might be a wallet, like an alternative payment method. Oftentimes, this specific group of fraudsters are targeting the payment method, the wallet instead of cards. And one reason for that is because merchants are seeing that in some cases, the cards on file are being declined by the bank. However, the payment method, the wallet is not declining as much. They are authorizing in situations, even when the address has changed or the IP is different than anything they've seen in their portfolio. Fraudsters are quick. And if they're like, okay, well, we're getting more hits or we're getting more success on this alternative payment method than on credit cards, then we're just going to target accounts with that sort of payment method. So that is something that is definitely happening in some cases. Oftentimes they will use that card or payment method on file to purchase a gift card, an electronic gift card that can easily be transferred out and sold very quickly or resellable items, especially before the holidays. This is something that fraudsters need to stock up on their inventory as well and Unfortunately, we're already seeing that. Oftentimes, we'll see fraud for the holidays hitting retailers in October and early parts of November because fraudsters have businesses to run and they're wanting to sell those goods. It's almost like they're acquiring their inventory for holiday completely illegitimately and by stealing from good companies, but that is what they're doing. So often we'll see that now knowing what's popular and what will be wanted by consumers at a discount later on closer to the holiday season. Sometimes we do see e-commerce accounts used as account legacy, like I mentioned before with the buyer accounts on marketplaces and adding a new payment method. It's not super common, as common as I think it was a couple of years ago, but that's just based on anecdotal reports that I'm getting. So certainly your company still may be seeing that. So it's really important when you're realizing, okay, we've got account takeovers to understand why are they doing this? What are they trying to get to? What's the gold? What's the treasure that they're working towards? That will definitely help you in determining how to respond and what methods and barriers to put up to prevent those. Before I move on to, you know, some of the technology and tactics being used, I wanted to incorporate some of just the brilliance of Shoshana Marini and the lead support. I know I am a big fan of theirs. I think a lot of you, if you're listening to this podcast, have already purchased their book or listen, at least listened to the episode where I talked to them about writing the book. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's published by O'Reilly Publishing, and the book is called Practical Fraud Prevention, Fraud and AML Analytics for Fintech and E-Commerce Using SQL and Python. And I wanted to take a look at the account takeover section because they just did such a good job on this and talked to some of the best people. I was fortunate enough to be one of those people that they would ask questions to sometimes as they were writing the book, as well as to make some introductions to other brilliant people to help with it. This is kind of going a step back, but just talking a little bit about account takeover and why it's so prominent and what it is just at the basic level. I thought they did such a good job of explaining it. They mentioned that they had talked about ATO throughout the book, but that they waited until the 13th chapter to really talk about it because while ATO is a common attack method against all industries, it's both particularly serious and via social engineering and malware, particularly common in banking. The reason ATO has come up so often already, of course, is because it's such a prominent attack tool in the fraudster toolbox. Gaining access to a victim's account opens up a huge range of possibilities for a creative fraudster. 
ATO is carried out solely to facilitate fraudulent transactions. It's also sometimes simply one step in a more complex plan that may involve many different fraudster tactics. This is especially true with ATO attacks against banks, but it can happen in e-commerce stores and marketplaces as well. Okay, I will stop there. I want to incorporate a little bit more from the book throughout the next part of this. How are account takeovers done? What is the lifeblood? What do they need? If you're using stolen card numbers, you need stolen credit card numbers or you need to know the bin, the mod 10, I can't think of it now, but the math equation that creates, you know, you need certain tools to be able to get the data to create the cash out, right? I believe it's Brett Johnson used to always say that in order for fraud to occur, three things need to happen. You need to obtain data. You need to commit the crime. So in this case, account takeover. And the third pillar is that you need to cash out. This part is getting the data. And then we'll talk more about committing the crime in a minute. So I like the fact that in this book, Galit and Shoshana really talked about how ATOs are fueled by stolen data. I used to have a presentation I did at several conferences for a while that talked about the difference in data breaches and how you can look at what's being stolen in data breaches to determine what kind of fraud we're going to get down the line and how that's going to be monetized. For instance, you know, in 2013, we saw the last of data breaches targeting credit card numbers. Sorry, guys, I know that some of you listen, but Target and Home Depot 2013, those were the biggest ones. I will always remind everyone those were with card present data, not card not present data. It wasn't online cards used. However, the monetization happened online for sure. And one of the reasons why we saw data breaches targeting credit card numbers slow down or kind of stop after that was because those hacks actually weren't super lucrative for the attackers because they had, they realized that cards were closed, right? Banks could do, banks had more technology then to be able to identify which cards within their portfolio had been used at the point of compromise and then close them down or at least put modifiers in so that they couldn't spend as much money or something like that. When I had Robbie Perry on, and this was like a year ago or so, he spent a lot of his time fraud fighting on the issuer side. And he had talked a lot about what the banks did during that time as a result of those breaches. So that was fascinating to me. But also EMV occurred in 2015, making it harder to expose credit card numbers in card present transactions. So that then we saw this shift to really targeting rich account data, passwords, emails, usernames, sometimes even social security numbers in the U.S. That's social security numbers even in the U.S., but other government ID numbers in other countries as well. I think the two biggest significant breaches in the U.S. for all kinds of fraud, not just account takeover, actually more so synthetic ID and identity theft and other pieces were the OPM breach, the Office of Professional Management, as well as the Equifax breach, because that had everything about people. And you can't change those things, right? You can change your credit card number. You can't change this. So we saw this huge shift in the type of fraud occurring because of these data breaches, as well as what was being monetized and how all of that was working. The other way that fraudsters obtain data for account takeovers is through phishing attacks. There are various forms of phishing attacks. And as Sean said in the conversation that was released this past on Tuesday of this week, there's an ishing for everything, right? There's phishing, there's vision. There's smishing, there's all kinds of ishing, but really it's using social or social engineering to manipulate consumers or employees 
to, you know, click a link or share private information, emails purporting to be from a trusted source, IT repair scams, malware links, etc. So there's some form of social engineering occurring, whether that's over the phone, whether that is in an email, that is, you know, SMS texting, whatever it is, there's some form of phishing that's getting that person to either log into their account or giving their credentials to someone, clicking on malware, etc. So even with these two data sets, fraudsters can obtain Oh, so that's a, sorry, even with just two data sets. So even if a fraudster just gets on a, in a data breach, a name and email, they can then obtain more information using their own data enrichment tools. Some fraud organizations like criminal organizations have these master databases that stitch together different pieces of data from different sources or breaches. So maybe they received a name and email here, but they also received phone and address here. And then from another breach, they found a couple different password combinations. But then if they get a few password combinations from different breaches, they can see that either that consumer uses the same password for everyone, or they can realize, oh, they have some kind of methodology. They always put child's birth date in their password, or they always put the month that they open the account in their password, whatever that methodology is. So they're really starting to stitch these together and make these master databases and selling those, which is terrifying. And we've seen that over the last few years really enable a lot of different types of fraud, not just account takeover, but a lot of them. Or some of them will use data enrichment tools that are meant for our side of the fence, for fraud prevention. Here are just two examples. Early 2022, so just earlier this year, Vice wrote an article about criminal using and abusing TLO reports from TransUnion, which are similar to credit reports. They're very data rich about someone. So if they're targeting a specific person, if they need to deep dive a bit more, if they need to know how to answer out-of-wallet questions or KYC questions. If you know, you're trying to access your bank and your bank says, what was your first employer? That might be on the TLO, et cetera. TLO reports are something that a lot of people use on fraud prevention side. So when they have it, that makes it 10 times harder, right? There are other situations I'm aware of where they will use some of the tools that we use as well. But another one that's more public, the Fraud Bible in 2019 or 2020, I can't remember which version it was. If you're not familiar with the Fraud Bible, it is what fraudsters call massive document of kind of a how-to. And it shows it's a training manual, essentially, for fraudsters. And in one of them, it gave step-by-step -step instructions. And one of them was to double check that the IP you were using hasn't been put on a blocked list somewhere. And... There was a, at the time, there was a provider that provided IP scoring and geolocation to cybersecurity and fraud teams internationally. And they had just this random service where you could prepay for credits and you didn't have to sign up. You didn't have to go through, you know, an enterprise sales cycle or anything like that to get access to this database. You could just buy credits online and then just use them. And the Fraud Bible had step-by-step -step of how to go to this company's website purchase a few credits and then put in the IP address that you're using to double check that it hasn't been blacklisted somewhere. And unfortunately, at least at the time, there were thousands of online companies and banks and fintechs using that same data. So if they can leverage something on our side to make them even more of a fox in the hen house disguised as a hen in that analogy, they will.
you know, the nature available on a victim and victim list will usually determine whether what type of ATO it'll be, what company they will target, what type of company they will target, right? Bank and fintech are going to need more information on a person than an e-commerce or marketplace, for example, for logging in. But they also know specifics, right? This company within e-commerce, I don't actually need to know this. I can, this is how I can get around it or whatever it is. And then I'm going to read this part that is in the book because I just thought it was so good about, you know, this part. So interestingly, the nature of the available stolen data means the typical victim of an ATO attack varies slightly depending on whether a bank or a retailer is under attack. Banking fraud teams are more likely to see a higher level of attacks against male victims of a higher median age, whereas e-commerce fraud teams are still more likely to see higher levels of attacks against female victims of a slightly younger age. I found that fascinating and I have every intention of asking them how they learned this. But they also add that these trends may be changing in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, which drew so many more people online than changed shopping and banking habits so substantially. Fraud teams who rely on these norms should be revisiting them regularly to adjust as necessary. So looking at the time and knowing that so far the survey respondents for the Phrenology Listener Survey, which is open through the end of this month, please fill it out. The link is in the show notes. But those of you that have filled it out so far have said that you prefer to have episodes under 40 minutes. So because of that, this is going to be part one of an anatomy of ATOs. Next week, I'm going to dive more into the steps, the attack stages of account takeovers. I'm going to talk about each one and how how it differs based on their attack methods, but also where the areas of opportunity are to identify different behaviors. Obviously, because this is a public forum, I'm trying to be as careful as possible. But at the same time, you know, I just, just talking about the fraud Bible. A lot of them know a lot of the same things that we do. So I would rather that fear not hold me back from educating the people that I know that listened to this podcast. But so after talking about the stages of account takeover, then I will dive into the identification and prevention methods and just kind of some options. I hope that this is helpful to you guys. I mean, I know that typically these are things that I deep dive into when I'm providing training for teams at e-commerce companies or solution providers to better understand how merchants are thinking about solving these problems or what they're seeing, you know, how they diagnose each attack, et cetera. And so sometimes it's easier to do it with a slide deck or a whiteboard behind me. I know this is audio, so it's a little bit different, but hopefully it's helpful in that way to just Sometimes we get so carried away with talking about the newest thing and all that that we don't revisit. What is it at its most basic level? What is it? And let's look at it, the different pieces of it. And maybe as I'm talking about it, you're realizing, oh, okay, yeah, so that makes sense. If they're using data from here, this is why they do it for that. I wonder if we could put this in place and identify them that way. I'm being very broad. I am going to leave it here for now. I look forward to finishing this episode next Thursday, and I can't wait to hear from you on how Fraudology can continue to evolve and grow and what you thought of this episode. All right, I'll talk to you more next week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. 
You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.